Nehemiah chapter 10. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time at this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you do not have a Bible with you, as always, there should be one under a seat in front of you or around you somewhere. You may have to nudge your neighbor to get that if you need it. Um, so we are in week 11 of our Nehemiah series, right? 11 weeks. Nehemiah, I don't know about you. I've enjoyed it personally. Um, I just enjoyed kind of doing a deep dive into the story of Nehemiah and the book. And um, I've, I've really enjoyed just kind of walking through that sort of chapter by chapter. Uh, my card's on the table. I think there's a lot of value in just going through a book of the Bible so that you just kind of understand like what's really being said here and you kind of see where it fits in the full story of, uh, of, of Scripture. Um, it kind of forces me to preach on things that I normally wouldn't just choose to preach on. Right? I think that's good for us. We want the, uh, the Word of God to kind of bear its weight on us, maybe in things that would not be my first choice to preach. It may not be your first choice to listen to, but uh, when we go through books of the Bible, kind of forces us to do that. So I've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you haven't enjoyed it, please don't tell me, because we still have two more weeks to go. All right? That would be fantastic if you could just keep that to yourself. Um, so anyways, here's what I want to do. Recap, because this week is really kind of connected to last week. Really, the whole series has been like that because we are going through a single book of the Bible. Um, but but these, these two weeks specifically are kind of connected to uh, one another in a, in a really specific way. Uh, and so just to recap, in case you weren't here last week uh, or if you've slept since then, last week we were in Nehemiah chapter 9 and just looked at how the people gathered. Uh, and, and as they gathered, they, they kind of recounted their history, the history of their sin and rebellion and disobedience, and it was them confessing that, not because God didn't know, but because they were agreeing with God, what God said about their sin and disobedience and rebellion, that it was wrong. Uh, and so they're confessing that to God, and then <clears throat> all along the way, the, the whole point of, of them confessing and recounting their, their history was because at every point, at every point of their, their disobedience, every point of sin, every point of rebellion, God met them with more mercy. Okay, so that was last week. Um, and then um, really kind of this morning, we're going to be in chapter 10, like I said. But, but actually, in the Hebrew scriptures, the last verse of chapter 9 is the first verse uh, of chapter 10. And so we're gonna, I want to draw your attention to verse 38 of chapter 9, and then we'll get down to chapter 10. So here's, here's what they write at the end of chapter 9. It says, because of this, right, because of what? What is all this? Right? And it's everything that had just happened in Nehemiah chapter 9, everything we covered last week, right? All of God's mercy lavished on these people uh, despite their long history of sin, disobedience, and rebellion. So, so because of all this, because of God's mercies given to us, lavished on us, poured out on us, we make a firm covenant in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Okay? So in light of God's mercy, because of God's mercy lavished on them, they then say, okay, we're going to make a, a, a covenant, which is like a firm commitment. Right, because of what God had done for them, they're going to enter into a, uh, a, a covenant with God. And really what they're doing is they're kind of recommitting themselves to the covenant that already existed 
uh, and, and went into effect way back in the book of Exodus at Mount Sinai when God gave the people his law, entered into an agreement with them. Okay? Now, what I want to do really quickly is, is I'm always going to point this out every time we get a chance to do so. All right? The, the order of operations here is really important. Okay, any, any math people in the room? Yeah. Right? You, you know, the order of operations, like you got to get things, you got to do it a certain way or you get the wrong answer. Okay? Same thing here. Right? Notice it's, it's God's mercy that motivates them to kind of recommit to this covenant. Right? God's merciful, like God is merciful towards sinful men Sinful women like you and me, like the people here in Nehemiah chapter 9 and into 10, he's merciful towards them because of who he is, not because of what they do or don't do. Right? You and I cannot, have not, will never earn God's mercy. Right? Because by default, we don't deserve it. But because he is good, like we just sang about over and over and over, I'd like to have a dollar for every time we said the word good this morning. Right? Because he is good, Right, he lavishes us in mercy, and then our response to that mercy is to commit and surrender our lives to him. Right? So, it's, so it's never, I'm going to be in my best behavior, and as long as I'm on my best behavior, then I think God will act merciful towards me. Right? That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God is merciful, that he is kind, that he is good, and because of that, I'm going to submit and surrender my life to him, or as the people here in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10, they re-enter into this, this covenant, this commitment, okay? So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump down into chapter 10. The first 27 verses is just a list of names. So I'm not going to read that because that would be painful for both of us, okay? Um, right, those are not easy names to say, but I do think it's important. I do think it's worth pointing out. We're not going to cover the names. I'm not going to read through it. I do think it's worth pointing out that they actually had a list of names. In other words, they knew who was in. Right? When they say we're going we're gonna to sign on the dotted line, like we're agreeing, we're committing ourselves to God, we're committing ourselves to his people. Right? They knew who was in. They knew who was out. They knew who was committed to a part of this covenant community. Right? If I had time, we could have a conversation here about church membership, but I don't have time. Okay, I'm long-winded anyway. So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to draw your attention down into verse 28. That's where we're going to start. Because starting at verse 28 through the rest of the chapter is really the, the substance or the, the, the obligations of this covenant that they are going to enter into or, or re-enter into. So three big things I want you to see. I'm going to give them to you up front, and then we'll talk about them. Okay, the substance of their covenant. There's one, there's a commitment or recommitment, I guess, to pursuing holiness. Okay, so there's a recommitment to pursuing holiness. There's a commitment to trusting God, taking him at his word. And then there is a commitment to the covenant community of God's people. Okay, so those are the big three. Let's, let's talk about those individually, starting with their, the commitment to the pursuit of holiness. Look at verse 28. Since the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, 
their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our, of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Okay, First thing I want you to see, there is a, there is a separating from something, and then there is a joining to something. Right? If you go back and look at verse 28, right? let me point it out to you again. I hate it when I have to flip pages right in the middle of a verse. It annoys me. Anyways, you didn't need to know that. Um, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Right? So there's a separation from something, and then there is a joining to something. Okay? And we see that. Continue here in verse 30. They say, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay? Now, real quick, this verse and verses like it have been used to sort of er erroneously teach that God is against interracial marriage. That's not the point here, right? What God is against is, is the people of Israel uniting with the people of the nations around them because the nations around them did not love and serve and worship the God of Israel. All right, this has nothing to do with skin color and ethnicity. It has everything to do with sin and idolatry. Right? And so the people, they say, hey, we're not going to enter into marriage because that's a significant human covenant. We're not going to enter into relationship with people who do not worship the God of Israel. Right? So the, the point here is they are recommitting themselves to the pursuit of holiness. And the, and the reason I say that is when we talk about holiness, it's, it's this idea of like being set apart. Okay, Realizing that God has called us to a certain standard. And so because he's called us to a certain standard, like we should be set apart or, or look different than those who do not worship the same God that we worship. And that's what the people are, are doing here. Right, they're separating themselves from the nations around them. Right, and they're, they're joining themselves to the law of God, the word of God, and to the people of God. They're saying we are a set-apart community. We're pursuing holiness. Okay, and listen, pursuing holiness did not mean that they just kind of wall off in the corner in like a holy huddle so they don't get any of the world stank on them. Okay, that's not what they're doing. In fact, I could point you to other verses in the Bible. In, like, in Jeremiah, who again was a prophet during exile, during all, like, same period of history, right, where God calls the people, like, no, don't, don't remove yourself from the people. Like, yes, you're, you're set apart, you're different, but like, engage and work and serve and like, work for the good of the land. Don't, don't come over here like, in a holy huddle so that you don't get any of that filth on you. Right? That's not what we mean by being holy. What we mean by being holy, though, is that we look, our lives should look and live differently because of who we worship. Right? Our lives should look, we should look and live differently. Okay? It means that we live in increasing conformity. I use the word increasing on purpose because nobody's nailing it right out of the gate. Okay? We should live in increasing conformity to God's word, 
right? An increasing conformity to the image of Jesus Christ over and above right, the, the world. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to the world because we should be conformed to God's word and to the image of, of Jesus Christ. Okay, so to put that in kind of really straightforward terms, to be a Christian and to live like a Christian, live as a Christian should in the world that we're in, means that like we're just going to look weird sometimes. Right? We just are. Being a Christian is like, like you're just weird in the world. And that's okay. Right? So I got some examples here. Here's what it looks like to live sort of weird in the world that you and I live in. Okay? Right? Christians should extend a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of forgiveness in the midst of a world that loves to cancel people. Right? Because... Like, we know what it's like to deserve to be canceled. And yet, God, in his mercy, showed us a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of forgiveness. And as Christians, we actually believe that, that no one can out the cross of Jesus Christ. Like, even the most vilest of sinner is not so far gone that he cannot be saved or redeemed by God's mercy. So we want to be a people who extend grace and forgive. Right? Christians should view authority and power and, and influence as something to be uh, stewarded well for God's glory, for human flourishing, not to like impress or oppress others. Right? Now, that's not necessarily the world's standard of power and authority and influence, right? but that's how we understand it. Right? Christians, should, Christians should handle and, and manage their money in ways that that, that don't necessarily line up with the ways of the world. Right? We should handle our money and manage it in ways that, that bless other people and that advance the kingdom of God rather than just like accumulating stuff for our own self-satisfaction. Right? Now, I'm not saying you can't enjoy stuff. Like the Lord's blessed you, like enjoy some stuff. I'm just saying be generous with it too. Okay? Right? Christians, Christians subscribe to a sexual ethic. Right? That looks vastly different than the world we live in. Right? To, be, to be a Christian means that we believe that, that sex is a good gift from God, right? given to one man and one woman in the context of a covenant relationship. I need to back up here. One biological man, one biological woman, in the context of marriage. And that anything outside of that is to to venture off from what God says is good and right in his design for sexuality, whether that's, I mean, we could talk homosexuality, adultery, sex outside of marriage, pornography, or, or anything else that the world seeks to sort of promote and glorify. Right? To be, this might be the most offensive one in the room, to be a Christian means that we actually believe that the hope of the world resides not in an empty promise from a political party, but in an empty tomb and a risen Savior. Right? That's what it means to be Christian in a world where it's not like, like and, and to live like that is to look weird. Right? It just is. And that's what we're called to when we're called to pursue holiness. Right? It means living set apart so that we do not conform. It's not withdrawing from the world, but it is saying like 
we don't conform to the world that, that Jesus has sent us into. Does that make sense? Good. All right. Excellent. It made sense in my mind, but my mind's a scary place. Okay. Number two. Let's talk about commitment to trust God, take him at his word. Look at verse 31. So they go on, they're making this covet, and they say, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now that seems random, okay? But remember, they are, to, to, they're, for context, right? if you were here in Nehemiah chapter 8, chapter 9, the people gathered and they're listening to the law being read to them for like long hours of the day, right? Depending on what scholar you listen to, somewhere between three, six hours of the day. They just sat and listened to the, the law be read, okay? So my 40-minute sermon is like, like a blip on the radar, okay? So, so as they're listening, though, one of the things that they would have heard over and over and over again as the law is being preached is that God takes the Sabbath really seriously. Right? The Sabbath was important. There was a ton of laws related to the Sabbath, right? this day of rest that Israel was supposed to observe because God exemplified that to them when he rested on the seventh day. There's, the, the Sabbath was uh, a day for them to rest, to, to worship. It was a holy day. They were not supposed to work to do any of that. Okay, and then on top of that, there's this concept called a sabbatical year. Right? Zach tried to get a sabbatical year, and we were like, dude, that's not going to work. Can't do that. Okay? No, I'm kidding. He didn't. Um, I don't know. Maybe he did. But uh, the sabbatical year was, was so like on the seventh day of the week they rested. Okay? And the sabbatical year was on the seventh year. So every seven years, that seventh year was a day where they had to, uh, they were supposed to let their uh, grounds lie fallow, like not plant anything, not harvest anything, right? They're supposed to uh, relieve debt and release those, their, their servants. Like there's a lot of laws kind of bound up uh, in, in the sabbatical year. And so, but what I want you to see is, is yes, this is a command to rest. Okay, that is the command. But, but underneath that, right, underneath the command, like remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, observe the Sabbath year, all that stuff. Underneath all of that is, is most fundamentally they're recommitting themselves to trust God and to take him at his word. Okay, and the reason I say that is because consider where they are as they're, they're hearing this law being read to them. They are in the midst of Jerusalem that has been destroyed. So they look out over the city and they're just seeing like destruction, desecration, all this work that needs to be done. Okay, at this point, they've built the wall, but everything else needs a lot of work. Okay? And then on top of that, their fields that they, that, like, that they have, they haven't been tending to those because they've been busy building the wall. We talked about this several weeks ago. All right, so you've got a city that needs a lot of work. You've got their fields and their crops and all that that needs a lot of work. And then you've got this law that says, hey, make sure you're resting every seven days. And then on the seventh year, make sure you're not doing any work to your fields, at least. All right, so they're hearing this. Right, the context in which they're hearing this, they're looking out. And all they see is, is the temptation to put in more work, more hours, pull some overtime, burn the candle at both ends. 
And here's God's law saying, rest. Don't work. Take a break. At some point, they've got to trust God. Right? And say, God, there's all this work that needs to be done. Our city is destroyed. Our, our fields are not producing the crops they need to produce. What do you mean take a break? And yet they trust God. And they take him at his word. At least they commit to. Spoiler alert, we're going to see here in a few chapters that they already they blow it again. Okay, right? But they're trusting, they're committing. God, we're going to trust you. We're going to take you at your word when it really doesn't make a lot of sense to do so. Okay, and, and where this lands on, on you and me this morning is we will constantly have to check the motivations of our heart. Like, why do we do what we do? Because as fallen people living in a fallen world, there will always be this temptation, always be a temptation to kind of lean on our own wisdom, lean on our own understanding, uh, to conform to sort of the, the wisdom of the world. And what we see here is that when it, when it doesn't make a lot of sense, they look around, they're like, this is, from human perspective, doesn't seem wise. They say, but God, we're going to take you at your word. You tell us to rest, we're going to rest. Right? And we're going to trust that you'll provide what we need when we rest. Whether that's protection from our enemies because our city's destroyed. Whether that's the crops that we need to, uh, to feed our, our families. Or to, as we'll see here in just a minute, to, uh, to contribute to the, to the temple and, and even to the economy in an agrarian society. That was kind of like their way of earning and, and trans, business transactions. Right? So they're saying, God, we trust you. For, your, for protection, your provision, even though from our human sensibilities, it doesn't make any sense. Right? It's a recommitment to trust God, to take him at his word. Uh, I love this, this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. This is Paul talking about the wisdom of God. So what we're talking about here is like trusting God when it doesn't make sense to us. Here's, here's what Paul writes. He says, 1 Corinthians 1, 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, which means he is not foolish, and he is not weak. Right? It's a play on words here, and Paul's basically saying, like, human logic and wisdom and knowledge and understanding on its best day pales in comparison to the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of God. Right? He's, he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. Right? So we trust him and we take him at his word even when we look around and it's like, it doesn't make sense to do this. And that's what the people were doing here, okay? But let's keep the train rolling, right? So we got a commitment to... Um, to pursuing holiness. There's a commitment to trusting God, taking him at his word. Here's the, three, the third thing, commitment to this covenant community or, or this people, okay? I want to read the last, kind of the last half of the chapter. It's a big chunk here, but we'll be all right, starting in verse 32 through 39. Here's what the people are committing to. They say, we also take on ourselves the obligation, I think that word is significant, the obligation to give yearly 
a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. And we, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborns of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions and the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes, a lot of tithing going on here, to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. So that was a lot. <laughs> There's a lot. There's offerings and sacrifices and tithes and first fruits. But what I want to draw your attention to is, is how often it was mentioned there, the house of our, our Lord, or the house of the Lord, or the house of our God, right? Every single one of those verses, verses 32 through 39, at least once, every verse mentions the house of our God, or the house of the Lord, right? The people are, are committing themselves, and they, right, the, the summary statement at the end, we will not neglect the house of our God, okay? And so, so what they're referring to specifically is the temple, Okay, they're, they're saying, hey, we, we see the, like, the significance of the temple. It was a place where the people worshipped. It was a place where they brought their sacrifices and their offerings and all those things that, where the priests would take their offerings to make atonement for, for their sin. The temple was where God's presence kind of dwelt among his people at that point in time. The, the Holy of Holies, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen Indiana Jones, all that kind of stuff. Okay, like the temple was a significant area of worship for the people. Like it was the, the central area of worship for these people, right? And so uh, what, what they're committing to is they're saying, we're going we're gonna to give ourselves, we're going to give of ourselves to the ministry of the temple because this is a place where we worship. And it's as we worship here that, that we are a witness to the world around us of God's presence and God's power among us. And say, we're going to commit ourselves to that. Right? Now, for those of us living on this side of Jesus' resurrection, which is all of us, there is no physical temple that we are required to worship at. 
Okay, there is still a temple. Okay, I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But there's no physical like building where we have to go to to worship, right? Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. There is no more sacrificial system that happens at the temple, right? Because uh, Jesus Himself intercedes for us. Like we don't need a priest to kind of go in and, and intercede for us uh, for our behalf and b- before God, right? All like then the 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 kind of crucifixion account talks about how when Jesus was crucified, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom to signify that that there is no more, like we're, we're no longer separated from God. Like we have access to his presence. We don't need someone else to go in for us. Like, like we have access to the presence of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so there is no like physical structure that's required for our worship anymore. It's like when Jesus was talking to uh, the woman at the well, he told her, right, the day is coming where you, like you don't just worship here at the temple, like, so because of Jesus Christ, like we don't have a physical temple, but, but I would submit to you that we, we do have something just as significant. Something that is still kind of the central place of worship for God's people. Something that still serves as uh, a witness to God's power and presence among us as God's people. And that is the church. It's the church. And I'm not talking about a building, the church. I'm talking about a people. Right? These this are Paul's words to, again, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is what he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, Do you, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In other words, his presence dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. That's what he told the church in Corinth. The church, as a gathered body of believers, is the temple. The temple is no longer like this physical structure, this place you got to go to. It's a people that you belong to. Okay, you are that temple. And that's true of like any ch- churches down the road here, any church that believes the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaches the Bible is a kind of local temple of sorts where God's presence dwells among, among the people. Okay, so, so connecting the dots. The people here in Nehemiah are recommitting themselves to the temple. We're going to contribute in meaningful ways to the ministry of the temple. Here's what that looks like for you and me today. You've probably already connected the dots, right? We contribute in meaningful ways to the church, to the covenant community of believers that is the temple, right? We, we, we give ourselves in meaningful ways. So let me put some handles on that, though, because it's one thing to be like, commit yourself to the church, and we could be like, yes, let's do that. But what does that actually mean? Right, so some examples. Right, bef- before anything else, being committed to the church, to this covenant community of, of believers that, that are a temple of sorts. Right, before anything else, being committed 
to the church means being present. It's really hard to be committed to people that you're not actually present with. Like I could stand up here all day and be like, man, I love my family. I committed to my family. I'm a family man. If I gave them an hour of my time each week, you would say, that dude is full of, what am I allowed to say up here? Nonsense. Right? Being committed to a people requires your presence among those people. Okay? So that's just the first thing. Here's the other one. Being committed to the church, to the temple, means being generous with your time. Right? It means, it means serving in ways that you are gifted to serve. Right? Actually, like, and, and, and listen, that's going to inconvenience you. It just is. Right? We're, we're not called to serve and give ourselves to the church only whenever it's like neat and clean and fits in this sort of like 45-minute time that I've got blocked off for it each week. Like, it's going to inconvenience you. It's supposed to, right? So being committed to the church means, like, being generous with your time, even when it's not always easy to do so, okay? Being committed to this covenant community means being generous with your abilities and your talents and your skill sets and your giftings and using those things that the Lord has given you to serve this people and the community around us. Right? The, the church is a body. So it's scripture, one of the things scripture refers to a lot. Body has a lot of different members. They all do different things, but they all work together to make, to make it work. Okay? We are gifted in different ways. We have different like, passions and different inclinations and different skills. And, and I'm saying you're put here on purpose for a reason. Like, you may think it's an accident you showed up here. What I'm telling you is that the, the omniscient, all-knowing creator of the universe is like, that church needs that person for this season. And he put you here for a reason. And so there's a place for you to serve, like, with your abilities, your talents, your skill sets, your gifts, right? You like kids? There is always a need in our kids' ministry. Right? Even a church, even a church this, this size, there is a need for kids. Before I came here, we were in a church of about eight, 900 people. Still, always a need in the kids' ministry. Always. I just think that's like, from now until Jesus returns, there's just always going to be a need in the kids' ministry. Okay? Maybe you're like, I don't like young kids. Okay? We need to do something with students. Because these babies aren't keeping Okay, like they're getting older, right? We need, what's that environment look like? I don't know, we, we need one. Maybe that's a place where you jump in and say, like, I'll, I, can, I can give some time to that, okay? Maybe you're gifted uh, with tech and all that kinds of stuff. You, know, you like pushing buttons and sliders and all that, you know, like, we could put you, we could put you back up there, okay? We're gonna put some restraints on you because we don't want you just pushing any buttons, Okay, but we'll, we'll teach you and train you like we always use help. Right? Maybe you're gifted musically and, and like really gifted musically, like not like you grew up your mom telling you you were gifted, but you're kind of like, <laughs> not that kind of gifted. You know, it's like, like the first few weeks of American Idol gifted. That's not what we're after here. We're like, maybe like you actually have a, like a musical gift though. We got room for you up here, Okay. 
Right? Or, or maybe it's like, maybe you're into the boring stuff, like budgets and bylaws and that kind of, I, Listen, I'm a nerd. Like, to me, the idea of like writing bylaws, I'm like, that gets me like geeked. Like, I'm excited about it. But right, whatever it is, like, there's a space for you here. And committing yourselves to this people looks like that giving your abilities, your talents, your skills to the, the building up of this church, ultimately to the advance of the kingdom. Okay? I got one more, and this, listen, this is, this is going to be the one that's going to make us all nervous, but we're just going to talk about it. Okay? Being committed to the church means being generous with your money. Okay? Like, if we're being honest, that's really what this whole chapter is about, is them being generous with their earnings. Right? I just added the other stuff because I think it's an implication, but really, like, the specifics of this passage is them saying, like, we're giving of our earnings. It wasn't finances as in, like, you know, currency. I guess it kind of was. Like, this is an agrarian society. This is how they did business. This is how they, they conducted transactions was with their crops and their produce. And like that was their form of earnings. And so for them to say, we're going to give the first fruits of our produce. We're going to give the first fruits of our livestock. We're going to give all of these. Like this is them saying, we are going to contribute financially to the ongoing ministry of the temple and what that means for us. I, 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 I don't know Maybe we should go back to bartering or something, but like for most of us, our income is financial. Our earnings are financial. And part of what it means to be committed to the covenant community of people, the church, the modern day temple, is to be generous with our finances. Right? To to say, I'm gonna I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give to the support of the ministry, I'm gonna give so that the kingdom advances, I'm gonna give for the building up of of the church at sacrifice to myself, okay? And it's significant because, one, your, your generosity does help build the church up. It does help advance the kingdom. But I would also say you giving generously is not just for the church. It's also for you, right? Because where you spend your money is inextricably linked to where your heart is. It just is. Right? If, if, if we were to pry at your bank account, your bank statements, I could probably tell you things you're passionate about. Right? I'm passionate about Chick-fil-A, Qdoba, and apparently gas because I get 13 miles to the gallon. Right? Like our, our, our bank statements are kind of like theological documents. They, they show where our heart is. And so to be committed to the people of God, to the church, to the modern-day temple, is to be generous with our finances to the people of God. Now listen, as we're able, I'm not saying like, listen, I know we're in different phases of life here. I get it. Some of us can be really, really generous. Some of us are like, like the widow, just drop in her two cents. Like, listen, God honors it all. Right? But we're not asking for equal gifts, but I think equal sacrifices is the heart of this. Like, I've heard people say, like, how, how, what do we give? Like, how much do Christians give now? Is the tithe still a thing? Is it not a thing? Right, we, we can have all those debates. I don't have time for them here. But like, at the very least, one of the things I've, I've heard that I think is helpful is like, we should give until it hurts a little bit. Like, we should be generous to the point where it's like we feel it. Like I can't do everything that I want to do because I've got to contribute to the ongoing ministry 
of the people that I'm committed to. Okay? So I'll leave that there. Let the Spirit do what the Spirit does. Okay, so here's the recap. Right, you've got, from, from the text here, the, the people of, of Israel gathered here, you've got a commitment to pursuing holiness, a commitment to trusting God, taking Him at His word, a commitment to the covenant community of God's people, right? the, the ongoing ministry. And so to land the plane, my, my, here's my question for you this morning, is, is what does this look like for you? As you consider these commitments that they're making, what does it look like for you to commit to that or maybe to recommit to that? Right? Do you need to recommit to the pursuit of holiness? Are there, are there areas and places and spaces in your life that, that really don't look any differently than the world around us? Maybe, you've, maybe there's, there's areas, pockets of your life that have been more conformed to, to the wisdom of the world rather than, than, than God's word. Right? Are, there, are there places where you need to recommit to trusting God and taking him at his word? Right? Areas where you kind of lean on your own understanding, on your own wisdom. You look out and you're saying like, I know what God says, but this is what makes sense to me, so I'm going to live this way. Are there areas where you need to recommit yourself to trusting God and taking him at his word, even when it doesn't make a lot of sense to do so? Okay? And then do you need to recommit, maybe commit to the first time, in a significant, meaningful way to this covenant community? Are Are there ways in which you might give yourself more fully and more faithfully to this little temple outpost that gathers here at 6746 South Wilson Road every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Right? Maybe that means you need to jump in and serve. Maybe it means you need to, to give some of your time. Maybe it means you just need to be here more often. Right? Maybe it means like you need to start giving financially. Right? What would it look like for you to recommit yourself to this covenant community? Because if we're honest... All of us, your pastor included, can think of ways in which, like, yeah, I need, to, I need to commit more to that. I need to commit more to that. I need to commit more to that. Right? And, and here's the deal. Recommitment begins with repentance. With acknowledging that the way that we are currently doing things, or the way that we're currently walking, is not fully in line with what God says, and we repent, we turn from that, and align ourselves with his priorities for us as his people. All right, so to, to circle back where we started this morning, though, talk about this idea of, of repentance. It's always, it's always God's mercy and his kindness that leads us to repentance. That's Romans 2, 4. God lavishes us in mercy, kindness, goodness. And the point of that is that we would see him as merciful, gracious, good, and kind. And we would say, I want to surrender my life to that. Any area of my life that's not in line with that, I want to repent and I want to get back where I belong because he is good, because he is merciful, because he is kind. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Okay, and then lastly, right, all that was for Christians in the room. But I don't know your heart. Maybe there's somebody here that's 
that you're not a Christian. Right? And, and I want you to know that God's mercy is still available to you this morning. Right? He acted first. He, act, he, he sent his son to earth while we were still sinners. Right? God has acted He's proved his mercy towards you. He acted first in the sending of his son for the forgiveness of your sin and for the promise of eternal life. His kindness, his mercy is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to draw you into a relationship with him by repenting or turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And that invitation has been extended to you this morning. He is merciful. He is kind. And his kindness leads us to repentance in whatever repentance looks like for us this morning. All right, let's pray. Father, um, you are good. And I pray that those would not be words that we just say because we know they're the right thing to say. But I pray that we would like feel that when we say it. The the words that we've sang this morning, that you are good. You are a good, good father. And it's your goodness and your mercy that is meant to lead us into repentance. So would you reveal to us this morning where we where we need to repent, where we need to pursue holiness. Lord, would you convict us where our lives uh, look more like the world than like what you call us to in your word? Lord, would you, would you convict us where, um, Father, where we have failed to trust you and take you at your word, where, we've, where we're kind of relying and leaning on our own finite wisdom, knowledge, understanding, rather than taking you at your good, perfect, eternal word. Would you reveal that to us this morning? Lord, would you reveal to us as a a church family, as a covenant community, would you reveal to us where we might give ourselves more fully and faithfully to this people? Lord, some of us got areas we can jump in and serve, Some of us, Lord, we've got talents and abilities and gifts that we could leverage for the good of this body and and for the advance of your kingdom in the community around us. Lord, some of us can give more faithfully, financially, to the ongoing work of ministry here. Or would you just reveal to us where we need to recommit ourselves to you, ultimately, where we need to repent, pursue holiness, trust you, trust and love the, the, the people that you've put around us. And then, Father, maybe there's one here this morning that's never, that's never committed themselves to you in the first place. They've never surrendered their lives to you, never, never acknowledged their sin, their need for a Savior, never repented of that, never cried out to you for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. Lord, would you prompt them with that this morning? And so, Father, we come to you, we pray to you, we cry out to you because Lord, you are you are a good father.
And so, Lord, we ask all these things. We pray for all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.